eventually the job of the founder is to have literally no job. So you delegate your way to that situation where you have processes in place, SOPs for everything. You have people in charge who can make the decisions for you. Welcome back to Product Market Fit, a podcast all about startups and growth. I'm your host, Moshe Poltrak, and my guest today is Pietro Sacomani, serial entrepreneur and CEO of Feedbear. In this episode, we cover how to gather customer feedback, purchasing a company from an exchange, and bootstrapping. This is a great interview that I'm sure you'll enjoy. But first, a couple of housekeeping items. I want to say congrats to our second giveaway winner, Funmi D. The review on Apple reads, in part, Demystifying Entrepreneurship. I enjoyed learning from a diversity of guests who share not just success, but failures and pivots. It is also a great way to get a primer on a wide range of industries. Thank you very much, Funmi. I appreciate the review and glad that you're enjoying the show. A quick reminder that we're still running the book giveaway, so go ahead and leave a review of the show if you want signed copies of Dr. Reed Blackman's Ethical Machines, Build What Matters by Rajesh Nerlikar, and Eli Schwartz's Product-Led SEO. Don't forget to share the review on Twitter or LinkedIn and tag me, at Moshe P, to be eligible to win. Terms and conditions apply. If you don't want to leave a review, but you'd rather send me private feedback, I always love to hear from you. So reach out on LinkedIn or Twitter or via email at hello at pmfpod.com. The Product Market Fit Podcast is brought to you by Growth.co. That's growth without the O.co. Growth offers fractional CMOs paired with best-in-class digital marketing execution to support early-stage startup success. With a focus on seed and Series A companies, Growth has helped a number of SaaS, digital health, and e-commerce startups build their go-to-market function and scale up. To learn more and book a free consultation, go to growth.co, that's G-R-W-T-H dot C-O. Without further ado, I present my interview with Pietro Sacomani. Hello, welcome, Pietro. It's really good to chat with you. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So jumping right in, can you tell us what is Feedbear and who do you serve? Feedbear is a feedback management tool that helps uh, software businesses collect, analyze, and make sense of customer feedback, essentially to improve their products or services. We mostly serve B2B SaaS, but we also have a few B2C customers. A tool that uh, customers can embed inside of their app to collect their user feedback, right? Correct. Yes. It can either be embedded or it can essentially become a white-labeled feedback portal for the company. So they'll generally customize it and link to it from even emails or customer conversations or their marketing website, Footer, and have it as a space for their customers to go to whenever they want to suggest an idea, voice a problem, a need that they have found as they were using the product. But of course, we also have a, a feedback widget that can be embedded within the product directly. Super cool. I'm very curious about the process of collecting customer feedback. Obviously, it's an important uh, data source for any product team, any software team to know what customers like, what they don't like, wish list, bug reporting, things like that. But it also can be overwhelming when there's too much information coming from users, from customers. How do you know how to prioritize what they're asking for? You can't just listen to customers and build whatever they're asking for. There needs to be a balance. So what are some of the things that you're seeing from your customers and from your own journey that works? And what are some challenges that people often stumble across when they're implementing a customer feedback program? First of all, feedback can mean a lot of things, right? So in our context, feedback is essentially ideas and requests that come from customers or product users. Ideas and requests that the founders or a product team needs to essentially take 
digest and translate into problems and needs and then come up with their own solution to, to ship eventually as a product feature. Especially Feedbear is not a tool that's designed as a, say, survey tool or in product uh, survey tool to collect feedback, feedback on UI elements or overall customer experiences, right? So it's not MPS, it's not something for UX research. It's really mostly for product teams and the founding team that really wants to know what the customers want and what the customers need. What works, first of all, is making it very easy to get feedback, right? And it's important for that to have that space to make it obvious how to get to it and to, in a way, promote it with customers so that they learn that there is this channel. When it comes to prioritizing, that's really essentially the job of product management. And uh, we work especially with companies that are drowning in feedback. That's one of the big problems that our solution solves. Feedback comes from a million different sources. It might be through customer support, sales conversations. Um, it might be in meetings. It might be from stakeholders. It might be from investors. And it becomes really hard to make sense of the feedback itself to assign a quantitative element to feedback that otherwise normally is, is purely qualitative. And then, of course, prioritize. So the way that we do it internally, for example, is we mostly focus on impact, impact that we see a request or an idea can have on the overall customer experience and the business itself. Uh, we combine that with some measure of effort of what it would take to build a solution as we designed it. And but we also look at what's trending in terms of uh, requests, and we tend to prioritize issues that would uh, address the largest portion of our customer base. We also have been learning to combine feedback, as you were saying, you cannot just build everything that customers ask for, right? That is not a strategy. Um, so you need to combine feedback with your own strategy, with your own vision, with your own idea of what the product should be doing. And beyond that, I think from having a clear understanding of strategy and who you're trying to be and for whom, it's good to have the discipline to sometimes make bolder decisions about product, take bigger risks that don't necessarily come from just plainly listening to customers and their specific requests, sure. but might actually come from digging very deep into what their problems are, what their needs are. And that I think is done using a tool like Feedback to collect ideas, but then going deeper with customer interviews or even just discussions. Uh, I think one big part of what Feedback enables is that as soon as an idea comes in, you can start having a back and forth discussion with the person that suggested it, but also with anybody else who joins the conversation. And so going deeper to find the root of the problem that the customer is having, understand their context, and then to make a bolder decision about product direction that might not be as obvious just looking at you know, what's the most voted feature on your board. Yeah, I like that a lot. Your customers may be able to communicate to you what they think they need, but it's not necessarily what they actually need. And having that back and forth to uncover what is the why behind the ask so that you're delivering maybe not what they asked for, but you're solving the need that they're looking to address. Um, one framework that Adam Nash, actually, who's, who's going to be on the podcast in a few weeks, he's talked about it. I don't know if it's necessarily his. I, I've seen different variations of it. But basically, you have three different backlogs that are working in parallel. Maybe it's actually four because you always have bug fixes as its own lane, right? You have your strategic initiatives, like you mentioned, right? Those need to come from the company vision. Those need to come from the data. 
your customers can't tell you those things. The next bucket is customer requests, especially in SaaS. You're always going to have those and you need to prioritize a certain percentage of those. And then the last bucket is the customer delight bucket, which customers don't know to ask for. And they'll never be a metrics driver, so they can't be a strategic initiative. But if you don't have a lane for those, they'll never get done. So agree with that kind of framework and also how you positioned the customer feedback piece. When I looked at the product, it looked like you had three main features. You have the the feature request portal where people can submit features. Then you have the bug reporting as well. Uh, and you have kind of like this build in public type forum, really, right? It's like things we need your help with or things we want your feedback on, right? Yeah. How's that used? And what are some of the best practices that you've seen with companies that do build in public, so to speak, right? Their product roadmap is visible to everybody or that they're ranking features based on feedback from their community. And all that is enabled within Feedbear. What are you seeing there? And, and what are some trends to look out for? I think there's a general misconception with public roadmaps. It's very popular, at least among our customer base. It's kind of one of the core problems that we solve as well. And there's a bit of a misconception that essentially you're putting your entire roadmap and making it completely public. And of course, your competitors will see it and will copy everything you do. And it's a nightmare. We're not doing it. It has to be internal only, right? So we often hear that as feedback and, and we have the internal only mode, right? We have the privacy features and we're we're building a lot in that space as well because it's genuinely a use case, especially having a mix of public and private. But I think where the value comes from that solution is you're kind of giving something in, in the form of visibility to what you're working on. You're making the customer feel like their voice is listened to, but they also get something back in terms of knowing what's coming. So you're creating space for them to participate, submit their own ideas, but not just, also in a way, wanting to stay up to date with what's happening, right? And that has great kind of spillover effects in terms of helping you drive feature adoption, helping you when you're announcing a new feature to essentially have them part of this community so that when you're going to Feedbear and pick from a dropdown, change status and make an idea live, quote unquote, by announcing that it's actually now done, you essentially have a customer base that's automatically alerted to it. And of course, it's a customer base that's generally far more engaged than the average. So you're giving something with a public roadmap and you're taking back, I think, a lot in terms of user participation, insights, feedback. And I think you're also, in a way, responding to a way that has become more and more uh, popular when it comes to building product and something that has become more and more of an expectation from customers. If you think of crypto and Web3 and, and all those projects, that kind of idea of participation and working with a community to build something, uh, I think there's a lot of good in that. And there's a lot that even the SaaS community is taking over. Very interesting. The conversations that are happening today. So if a company doesn't have a tool like yours, these feedback loops are happening anyway, right? So you're getting inbound requests or feedback into your customer success team or customer service. There may be some community chatter if you have, you know, whether it's a, you know, Discord or a Slack community or whatever. You have people that talk about you on social media that maybe you can monitor. Maybe sometimes, you know, those get missed. But how does all of that fit in with what you're building? Are you looking to replace that or augment it and centralize it in a single place? How does your platform serve that? I think that is one of the core problems that we address and we want to build even more around that. But we're not a feedback automated aggregation platform, which tends to be 
about ingesting things like reviews and social media activity, as you were saying. They were a place for ideas and requests. Sometimes they're feature requests. Sometimes they're the request for a bug uh, fix. And um, sometimes they're problems. Sometimes they're a description of what the customer is trying to do. And one core principle we have with Theber is to make things very customizable, right? So you can also shape the tool to really ingest whatever you want to have. So you can uh, prompt your customer or your user with specific questions. And of course, that will affect what you're getting in. We have unlimited boards. So you can have a, essentially an idea board for different things, right? We use it for feature requests. We use it for integrations. We use it for requests for uh, languages and translations. Uh, we use it for, for bug reports. Um, you have a lot, a lot of flexibility around that to really ask the questions that are most meaningful to you or to separate things out in different ways. But yes, going back to your question, I think there's a general problem of collecting ideas and requests. And we facilitate that through one, having this space that usually is public to customers. But we also have a lot of customers that use this privately and essentially aggregate ideas from different systems, whether it's their customer support tool. We have an integration with Intercom, for example, or maybe it's an internal conversation that's happening in Slack. We have a Slack app for that and bring everything into a centralized place where they can start seeing those trends. They can start accumulating those uh, measures of interest through app votes. And sometimes those are app votes that are done on behalf of a customer. And sometimes they are directly done by the customer if the board is public. It enables you to see that picture of what's actually most frequently requested. And feedback doesn't get lost. Uh, you get that overview, right? Which is one of the core problems that we fix. Absolutely. And that's a very common problem, especially as you're scaling. There's so much data being thrown at you from different sources, qualitative and quantitative. So having a viewpoint where you can collect and then rank and then act on that input and that stimulus is critical. So let's rewind in history here. What got you to start Feedbeer? Was it a personal pain point? I know that you have couple other businesses that you've started, a SaaS business and a services businesses. Was this a particular pain point for you that you felt that, hey, I need to build this for myself and then realized maybe I should offer this for others? Is that how it came about? I actually didn't start Feedbear. I acquired Feedbear. Feedbear was built in 2018 first by a guy called Thomas Vestenicki. He was working at a, an agency doing software development for startups and kind of saw the, the pain that his customers, his clients had prioritizing ideas and kind of how scattered they were essentially. So he wanted to build a tool that could help making that type of rapid product development easier. And I acquired it in 2021. So he took it to a certain point. When I acquired it, he had a handful of customers. And, uh, and since we've been, you know, essentially building out the product, building out the company around the product, and we're now a small team of five, including myself. We have about 100 customers using the product and still completely bootstrapped, or maybe I should say self-funded in the sense that I, I have been investing myself into product development and marketing through, through the revenue generated from my other businesses. But going back to your question, what attracted me to the idea of seeing it was essentially the realization that I had effectively built two businesses before where we essentially pivoted from an original idea because of customer feedback, but we never did it in such a systemized way. We didn't have a good system as what Feedback provides. We mostly just did it all 
kind of like the scrappy and, and probably one of the most popular ways, which is just talking to customers, taking notes, building a spreadsheet somewhere. And I was attracted by the idea of a simple tool that could in a way systemize that process. And also something that could help you by creating that centralized place for yourself and the team for feedback, but also create that community for customers so that through that process I was mentioning, through giving them something in terms of visibility into what's happening with the product, you actually build enough value for customers to actually want to come in and suggest and come back to that space, creating more and more engagement around that group of customers. Fantastic. I had no idea that you bought the company. Was it via microacquire or how, how did you go about doing that? Yes, it was actually via microacquire. I think it was relatively early in the history of microacquire. Yeah. Um, I had been kind of looking for tools in, in these and related spaces. I also really liked uh, the idea of change logs as another type of solution, which actually Feedbear integrates as well. And that's how I found it and started talking to Thomas and uh, we had, had a great chat it, it, everything worked out very smoothly. And he then worked with us for more than a year, I think, part-time, just helping out with the initial kind of challenges of, you know, taking over a project like this. Very cool. I'm very curious about the microacquire space and Andrew Gazdecki is actually on my wish list of guests for this podcast. So maybe if he listens to this, <laughs> we can get him on. Can you tell us a little bit about that process of finding and buying a company via that platform. And for those that don't know, MicroAcquire, actually, they're Acquire now. They rebranded Acquire.com. And it's a platform for buying and selling small businesses, SaaS businesses, and typically things that used to be done via brokers, but wasn't really feasible for small businesses because there's just not a lot of margin there. The platform opens up and it's a really interesting space to see you know, what's being built and sold and, and what's being bought. So I'm just curious about your experience there. Yeah, I think it's a fantastic platform. It's a great opportunity for people like myself that are perhaps not a technical founder type to essentially take over something like a SaaS product that has maybe some initial traction, but that perhaps hasn't seen the level of success that the founder originally hoped for. And I know... Uh, I think we all know that it's really hard to you know build a business and build the growth engine that fuels growth for the business all at the same time, and especially as a as a single person. So that was the case for Thomas, right? He tried to do everything himself and kind of showed uh, his talents of building not just an app, but building a brand, building a website, starting marketing, acquiring the few early customers. But I think in general, the idea of building a business completely on your own. I think for a few that that's possible. Certainly, this is not my approach. I definitely like to build a team, uh, and I know that for me at least, the path is one where I bring others in to help building something um, you know bigger and valuable, and has so many moving parts that it, it would be impossible for myself to do all on my own. Sure. So I kind of recognized that opportunity when I saw Feedbear and like it. There are so many now on that and many other marketplaces because it started as microacquire, it became acquire. And in the meantime, a bunch of other platforms have started. So it's not completely impossible today buy a business potentially just for a few thousands through those marketplaces. And of course, you're not buying something that has 
a lot in terms of validation, but you can definitely find a lot of great opportunities these days at various sizes of the business, which I think a fantastic opportunity for someone that has the skills to grow the business, maybe both on the building front and the marketing front, to pick something up and skip maybe a good couple of years of painful work while you maybe have zero customers and you're just building product in isolation, which I think is the hardest part to stick to, especially if you're bootstrapping because things are slower because you can't have you know five developers working on it. And so being able to essentially start a business with a product, I think it's a fantastic shortcut to take, um, knowing that you might have to eventually pivot, you might have to do a lot of catch up in terms of understanding the market, understanding the customer, finding a direction, because most likely the person selling hasn't had everything figured out. Nobody has everything figured out. Yes. It, it actually can go full circle. There are companies that were bought on MicroQuire at the early stages, someone built it up and then put it back on the platform. And that's why they rebranded because they're no longer just MicroQuire. They have big businesses yes. on there for sale as well. It's an interesting approach. Let's focus in on Feedbear's acquisition and growth strategy. You bought it with some pieces in place, but obviously not a very large user base. And you've been growing steadily since then. What channels or strategies have worked for you on the growth side? What hasn't worked and what have you learned along the way? I have also other two businesses, as you mentioned, and it's hard not to want to transfer some of that knowledge into a new business. And also the knowledge about what I feel is a, is a better match for myself, my skills, and what I like, and the context of a bootstrap business, which is very different, I think, from, from BC. So in terms of choices for channels, we started with trying maybe a bit more than I was comfortable with or that I knew. We tried, for example, paid ads across multiple channels. And eventually, we decided to put a stop or perhaps a pause on it as we focus on the things that I prefer as a channel, as a bootstrap company, uh, which are essentially content, SEO, and outbound, outbound sales, direct sales, outreach. So organic channels that I think require some investment, but essentially work off of time more than, uh, than money. Uh, I find paid ads can be challenging for an early stage bootstrap startup, in part because the market is affected by many players that are playing slightly different games from yours, right? And there's a lot of VC-backed businesses that need to acquire customers fast and are willing to pay a lot for those customers without a need to make a positive return in the short term. But you don't have that luxury in a way. As a bootstrap business, you have to make it profitable, right? And ideally, you want to see that return pretty fast. So I think perhaps not an ideal channel, sometimes possible, sometimes not. I think the game is also changing. So we might be back. But for now, we're really focusing on organic channels and mostly SEO. So we're doubling down on that. We want to build a lot more. We're focused on simple blog content, but we want to build a newsletter, a podcast, a resource library, everything essentially that helps product managers in their job. Specifically product managers. Yes, that's mostly our ideal persona. It's product managers, heads of product, startup founders, and there's some overlap and some intersection with customer success, customer support as well. 
Yeah. There was a stat put out a few years ago that 40% of all VC dollars were going straight into Google and Facebook ads. And I believe that that percentage has gone up since then. So you're absolutely right. When you're looking for paid acquisition, you're competing with some really deep pockets often. And you have to be really smart about where those dollars are going and what the result is. Oftentimes, especially if you're a VC-backed company going for hyper growth, it's the right strategy to employ you know, high spend, X amount of payback, whatever you're comfortable with, whatever your runway allows in order to capture market share and grow, right? With a bootstrap startup or with, you know, startups in very competitive fields where that acquisition cost may be too high for the company to, or to stomach at that stage, other channels, you know, you got to get creative and organic channels are always great. Uh, the problem with them is they take time. There's, it's not an immediate, like turn on the ad, see a, a thing. And then the other downside of organic channels is that Attribution is really hard and people, you know, love to be able to draw a line between, oh, I spent a dollar and I got back a dollar. Myself coming back from a performance marketing background, I also have a very kind of ROI focused mindset, but you can't think that way. You got to change your mindset when you're thinking about investing in community, investing in brand, investing in organic content and social media. Those pay off over time. And if done in the right way, they can pay off tremendously well, but you have to kind of change your mindset and how you approach that investment. Yeah, you definitely cannot look at that blog post and expect an immediate ROI, right? But you can have a certain confidence as a strategy. You just want to be found essentially whenever your customer has a problem that's related to your product. And I think as simple a strategy as that, it can get a long way, right? Essentially answer every question your customer has. And eventually it builds up. It's a self-reinforcing cycle of your site gains authority. The more content you have, right? And the more kind of deep expertise you demonstrate in a specific area on a specific problem. And at some point, you can get to a, a stage where you're almost surprised where, you know, what everybody says about I say, oh, yes, it, it will take six months to a year. It's a long-term thing. And it, it's true. But I think you can also get to the point where eventually you publish something and it ranks two days later. And I think when that happens, that's pretty cool, of course. And that enables you, I think, to do a lot that's uh, much more conversion focused and much more tactical and where you can have that kind of ROI-based mentality, right? I certainly believe there's an opportunity in going a bit more conversion focused and kind of starting from the bottom of the funnel when creating content rather than the other way around that's popular if you think of your blog as a blog where you go and sometimes share what you did in your last team retreat, right? But you can actually be very tactical and really focus on what problems your customers are trying to solve and give them the answers, right? And sometimes, of course, your product is the answer. SEO reminds me of that Chinese proverb that the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago and the second best time is now. I don't think that it's ever too early to start with SEO, because even if you're not investing a ton of content early on, at least just start laying that foundation from a technical and historical and authority perspective so that when you do build that content, you have that history built up. Waiting, you know, is, uh, you're not getting those compounding benefits and SEO is, is a compounding game, right? Like you mentioned, it's how much content you have, how much authority you've built up over time, and that double E-A-T experience, expertise, experience, authority, and trust. Google's getting much smarter about recognizing that, and you can't just suddenly flood a bunch of articles and start ranking if you don't have those items. 
Speaking of kind of the shifting landscape in content marketing, obviously AI is a big part of the new tool set. Some would say to the detriment of content strategies and some would say to the benefit of employing them. What are you doing in that space? How are you thinking about AI content generation? Yeah, it's on my mind, of course. I think it's on everyone's mind. I think it's wrong to look at it and dismiss it as, oh, this is just going to generate trash and we're going to end up in a spiral of crappy content generated by AI based on AI, crappy generated content and end up with a much worse situation than we perhaps already have when we look at what comes up as a top search result for certain queries on Google. Actually, there's a lot of potential to augment work that you're doing starting from data, for example. There's a lot that I think you have to fix in a way, or you have to find clever ways to input into the tools to actually get something that's factually correct, right? I really don't think it's as easy as give it a title and publish whatever comes out. That will most likely for some time still give you very unreliable information that I think we are doing at the service publishing directly, right? But there's a more programmatic SEO type uh, approach where you can scale certain content types. And we're not just talking about blog posts that you would have perhaps done with a template before. And now you can actually have something that is much, much better written, much more enjoyable to read, right? There's that. I think there's um, approaches where you can just simply write faster, right? If you know what you're writing about, if you can tell, if you can edit, then this is just a tool that speeds up the process for a writer, for an editor, for a team, or even for just a single writer. I think it does allow you to have a smaller writing team. I personally am using AI augmentation every day in various capacities. I've yet to come across a use case where one click and it's done. I have not found it to be that good yet, but I'm absolutely for utilizing it to make your team more efficient, be able to produce more with less. It's wild how quickly it's improving in its ability. So really excited about what's changing in every area of marketing and not just marketing. I think every area of our life is going to change with AI, but not to get too off track there. Let's go back to your ICP, your ideal customer profile. You're talking specifically about product managers. Is there a specific size of company or type of company that FeedBear is better suited for? And how do you think about the competitive landscape as a whole with you've got customer feedback tools that are broader like Qualtrics, and then you've got Pendo, which is more kind of like on-site in-app tools. And then obviously every product manager has product plan, aha, or you know any one of those kind of backlog management tools that also have an add-on for customer feedback gathering. So how do you think about that landscape as it serves your specific ideal customer profile? Yeah. Our ideal customer persona is a SaaS company. They're looking to improve their product. They're looking to improve their processes around product management and feedback specifically, they usually are inundated with requests. So one of the criteria we have is they probably have a customer support team. So they're at that size where, you know, if they have 50 customers, it does make sense. If they have maybe 100 customers and above, it starts to become, you know, useful. It definitely becomes more useful the larger your customer base. And it also tends to be more ideal when you have a type of customer that's buying in a way where perhaps the whole buying process, it's almost a little bit closer to a consumer self-serve model than your typical larger kind of corporate 
type of customer. So if you have few corporate customers that pay you 100K a year or above, this is probably not the tool for you, right? You want to do things privately. You're probably already doing things in meetings. This is not the sweet spot for a solution like this. We work with companies that have a feedback problem. And their feedback problem can be they don't answer the best possible way. Feedback gets lost. It's hard for them to really get a full picture of what customers really want the most. And therefore, sometimes they get sidetracked by whatever is perhaps the loudest customer or an internal team. And in that context, a solution like Feedbear essentially creates the right expectations. It creates a place where customers can go and see that there is a process. It kind of solves a bunch of related problems, like customers might make a request and they literally just expect it to happen right in a certain time frame. But if you do see that there is a process, that there is a, a space to collect other people's opinion and vote and collect that quantitative element, you probably know to wait. There's all these other requests are getting, right? And you also get that visibility into what the team is working on. So you know that they're busy with something else, right? So you know that something else is probably the priority. And that, in a way, solves a lot of the problems that teams have. And just making sure that customers can make a request and in a way be happy and satisfied, even if the thing is not getting built next month, right? Right. The famous last words of any product manager is, I'll add it to the backlog. I'll add it to the backlog. Exactly. And what happens most of the times is I'll add it to the backlog and the customer never hears again. Here, you can see that it's in the backlog and if it's not prioritized, it's not prioritized, but you see that it's there and it's not just, you know, going somewhere to die. Exactly. And you get, as a company, this kind of automated way to, to close the feedback loop. Some ideas will die and they probably had to die. But some ideas will get built. The problem is when you build them, oftentimes you just don't go back to the customer that requested it. You don't have the data or you don't know who else was also interested in that request. With a solution like Feedbear, you're automatically notifying them all when you actually have released it at even earlier in the process. So for them, it creates this space for customers to participate. It gives teams an opportunity to get a pulse on what customers want. They get an ongoing flow of ideas to work with, which is incredibly valuable, right? And most times you'll have to do a bit of work, of course, digging and validating and suggesting solutions and feedback creates the space for that. It creates that community of customers around product. So going back to your question about competitors, this is quite a crowded space. I got into this space exactly because it was a crowded space. I knew there were a lot of existing competitors and solutions. And that's what made it appealing to me because it was a validated problem with a validated solution, which means that for us as a bootstrap team, we don't really have to educate the customer about the problem and not even convince them that an idea board with upvoting and discussion and collaboration is, is a good solution because they already know they come looking for something like that. And that is what allows us to build a bootstrap business in the space and essentially just focus on our core proposition, which is essentially to build something that is faster, simpler, that looks better, that doesn't create more work for teams and something that can be implemented in a few minutes and that doesn't require any sort of learning curve for your team, especially, but also for your users and your customers, right? And so we can just focus on that, building a great product, 
continue iterating on that and not worry about all that kind of customer education problem. Dangerous words often for startup is educating the market. If you're a pioneer in space, you spend a lot of money and a lot of time to bring the market to you. And oftentimes those pioneering companies bear the brunt of that effort and win the battle, lose the war because they've just spent all of that capital and energy getting the market to where it is. And ultimately, you know, the better mousetrap comes along and then scoops up all of that created demand. So if you're in a crowded space, there's other challenges of competition, but at least you know that the problem is real, the solution is validated, the market exists, and then you have to figure out how can you carve out your uh, approach, your unique value proposition, and find your customers. I want to shift for a bit and talk about your journey in this business and your other businesses. You've avoided taking venture capital and you've bootstrapped or self-funded these businesses. Talk to me about your thought process and internal calculations around what makes sense for you and for the business. Why didn't you take venture capital or is it still on the table? The decision to bootstrap is essentially a consequence of wanting to have independence and autonomy in general. That's really one of my personal goals. And as a consequence, I want to be able to to maintain control of our uh, decisions, paths, and trajectory with each of the businesses. So the idea is that we can, and I think everybody should, <laughs> build a sustainable business right, and grow it organically. And uh, I think whether you decide eventually to go down the VC route and, and raise funding to fuel growth, which some ideas totally deserve, right? And it would perhaps be a, a missed opportunity not to. Uh, but I think starting from that solid foundation, building that solid foundation of a solid business model is a good way to start, right? I'm not so sure about raising funding without having done that pre-work. And I think it's very viable today, right? Largely thanks to a lot of VC-backed businesses, right? But we have all that groundwork, all those building blocks that we can use to, to be very effective. So it's become more and more viable to build a, a bootstrap internet business of some sort, even a software business. You can even build an AI-enabled business today with a couple API calls, right? And focus just on what makes you different, right? Focus on building a great user experience. So I think that's a solid path that I believe should be the default path for most. So I personally remain slightly skeptical of the kind of VC-fueled growth at all costs mentality, or at least the idea that it's the only option. I personally like a more realistic approach, one that gives you more options. It gives you more viable paths to some form of success that doesn't have to necessarily match with what is success for an investor. So you could build a business that, I don't know, makes a few millions a year and you have a fantastic bootstrap business that creates meaningful work for yourself and for your team and as happy customers. And it can just be that, right? And you can decide that that's totally enough for you and uh, and be satisfied with that and continue growing, right? It doesn't have to be a choice that comes from lack of ambition. You can really go for growth as well, but you might just do it on your own terms. A business that otherwise you look at the figures and it would be a failure for anyone who invested at maybe in an unrealistic early valuation. So I believe VC tends to create that type of binary 
situation where either you're on track for hyper growth or essentially you failed? Yep. I agree that VC dollars is not the only path. In fact, we just had a conversation for those who haven't listened to episode 16 yet with Omar Atun. He had taken venture funding from Sequoia and some of the biggest names in the Valley, had a good exit to a bigger player in the space. And he talks honestly about kind of the pros and cons of taking VC money and what that means for you and for the business. And it's a completely different path, right? Once you get on that train, you've got to keep going and you've got to get to the next station. And the incentives aren't necessarily aligned always between investors and startup founders. So just know what you're getting into and consider bootstrapping as an option. And that could be a, a really good path for you as a founder. Of course, on the flip side, you know, they say the, a bigger percentage of a smaller pie isn't necessarily the best outcome, but not all businesses need to blitz scale in the words of um, Hoffman with regards to capturing market share as quickly as possible. Not all markets are zero sum, so you can grow more organically in some cases and still have a viable business. Petro, I'm really enjoying this, but we're running low on time here. So we're going to transition to the exciting lightning round. I'll ask you some questions, free associate, whatever first comes to your mind. Sound good? Sure. So you're now running three businesses. You're kind of like the bootstrapped Elon Musk here. Tell me, how can you stay productive? How do you manage your time? And what have you learned to maximize your ability to run all three companies successfully? Yeah, I don't have a secret. I think what I do is what many others do and have learned around time, which is finding good people and having them help you build the business. You're essentially building the team before you build the product, before you build the company. Took me a while to figure out, right? It wasn't obvious at the beginning. And the, the big kind of mentality shift is to, you know, do less and less myself, essentially fire myself through time from essentially every job in the business and find people to replace to replace myself with. So that that is the way. And is that because you're getting really good at creating processes that allow you to delegate? Or is it just identifying people that you can just kind of hand off a section of the business and say, hey, are, you run it, you figure it out, and they're able to do it on their own? I think it's both, right? It's first of all, wanting to delegate almost everything. And I do think eventually the job of the founder is to have literally no job. So you delegate your way to that situation where you have processes in place, SOPs for everything. You have people in charge who can make the decisions for you. And the tough thing to do actually is to learn delegation itself, to learn to accept execution from someone else and to accept that execution is not necessarily going to be as good as yours. It's, it might actually be better, right? I have that type of generalist background, which means I know a little about a lot of things. I'm not particularly great at any of the parts of the job that, that it is to build a business like this or the other businesses that I do. I've also got into spaces where perhaps I didn't even know that much in the beginning. And getting other people to help with that, I think, has, has been incredibly useful. And today, I think we live in a world where, you know, post-COVID and all, just the trajectory of where work is going is changing and you can get an expert even without hiring that person that costs you hundreds of thousands a year. You can hire an expert to coach you. You can hire an expert to guide you. You can hire an expert to take a, a little piece of the job and execute that independently, right? And that's kind of part of the learning that I'm, that I'm doing, especially around marketing, really try and look for those people and then break up the whole job into smaller pieces and get help and get people that can actually execute with almost minimal 
supervision because they actually have done it before. They know it inside out and they don't need to, quote unquote, be managed, right? So keeping the team size very small and being able to execute that way, I think that's also part of what I'm figuring out and, and what I'd like to keep doing. Awesome. I'm a big fan of the fractional model, especially for marketing. Wink, wink. <laughs> I, I didn't ask you to say that, but I appreciate those uh, sentiments. What's a book, podcast, or newsletter that you find yourself recommending most often to someone else? I really like the writing of, of Jason Cohen. Jason, who's uh, the founder of WP Engine. I think his blog is uh, an incredible resource for especially bootstrappers. Now he's building a VC-backed business, but he has built bootstrap businesses before. And just the level of insight, I think is great. Very cool. I follow him on Twitter, but I have not checked out his blog yet. So I'll add that to my list. Thank you for the recommendation. Who's a mentor of yours who's had the most impact on your life or career? My first uh, employer, his name is Martin Varsavsky. He's, he's an entrepreneur. He's built several businesses in, in tech, telecoms, and biotech, uh, and health as well in this moment. And uh, he gave me my first job and he exposed me to the whole world of startups that I was fond of. But at the time, as a student, I was just a TechCrunch reader. And I got to see it firsthand. I was working with him, helping him essentially pick investment opportunities and in Web2 at the time, it was in 2007. So yeah, I would definitely say him. Very cool. What's one thing outside of work that's got you excited right now or is there something you're passionate about? That's interesting. One thing that I've picked up uh, recently is uh, woodworking. So I'm definitely a very beginner, but I've enjoyed building uh, toys for, for my kids. I have two small kids and just trying my hand at that. I find it's a perfect way to, to disconnect and keep myself... Uh, off of my phone for a good uh, four or five hours at the time. And just uh, the satisfaction of building something and having it in my hands after that, that's really exciting. There's nothing like that. And you better concentrate, right? Don't let your thoughts wander when you're operating a table saw. <laughs> yes, you better do that. Yeah. Stay focused. Uh, Pietro, I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for your time. Um, how can people reach you? Yeah, anybody can reach me. I really enjoy talking with other founders. I welcome everyone to, to reach out to me on Twitter or LinkedIn. On Twitter, it's P Sakomani. That's my name. So P S A C C C O M A N I. And on LinkedIn, you can obviously easily find me with my name. So yeah, just connect and I'll be happy to chat with anyone. Awesome. Any uh, final words or any uh, last words of advice for the audience? I should say listen to your customers, but I'll probably say <laughs> consider other paths beyond VC because I think that we're just seeing more and more proof these days that you can build a solid bootstrap business that has the potential to grow, even to grow big, right? It's not a choice to go small. It's just the choice perhaps to go at a different pace, but it's the opportunity to do it kind of the way you want. And I think that's, that's great. Rather than kind of playing someone else's game, you can play your game. Absolutely. Thank you, Pietro. Wishing you tons of success with the business, with all your businesses and with everything else. Great chatting with you and talk to you soon. Thank you so much. That's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to bookmark or subscribe to the show and turn notifications on for future episodes. Upcoming, we'll have the founders of Ignition, Daffy, and Wizard, as well as a special on startup PR. Remember, if you want to win signed copies of Reed Blackman's book, Ethical Machines, product-led SEO from Eli Schwartz, and Build What Matters by Rajesh Nerlikar, you've got to leave a review of the pod on Apple Podcasts or wherever you love to listen and share it on LinkedIn or Twitter, tagging me, at Moshe P., and if you don't want to leave a review, I'd still love to hear from you. So hit me up via email at hello at pmfpod.com or DM me on LinkedIn or Twitter. 
And finally, don't forget to check out growth.co, that's growth without the O.co, if you're considering a fractional CMO for your startup. Until next time, wishing you rocket ship success in your startup journey.